This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. It is a great, great privilege for me to be sitting here on a phone line with none other than Kevin Belmonte. How are you there, Kevin? Doing well, thanks. And what time of day is it there, Kevin? It's uh, just about 11 minutes past 10 in the morning here. Okay. Now, you are in which country? The United States, the state of Maine, here in the region we call New England, and we live uh, well, within just a couple of minutes of the ocean, so we're very fortunate to be where we are in the world. Okay. Now, we are in the middle of British summer, which means it's raining and uh, cold. Uh, what's it like there today? Ah, we are in the middle of what we call a heat wave. Here oh, really? In the <laughs> and uh, yesterday it was near 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. Looks as though it's going to be that way again today and perhaps a little bit of tomorrow before we get a break and get some much-needed rain. So uh, it's typical for us, not quite so high temperature-wise, but we do get warm here in the summer. Mm. You are living in, I suppose, some of the uh, oldest part of what's now the United States of America. Interesting because, of course, you yourself are a noted and an award-winning, no less, historian. Now, we at Christian Heritage London are interested in church history, but really we're not interested for the sake of history. And sometimes we bump up against uh, people for whom it seems that their chief thrill is history rather than the thrill of what is shown through it. <laughs> and uh, yes. what we are most prioritizing at Christian Heritage London is the gospel is true. And if it's true, it will have affected history. Now, what's delightful about meeting and talking with you, Kevin, is that these are your priorities as well. Biographer of William Wilberforce, Dwight Moody, G.K. Chesterton, and most recently, Borden. What was it that you studied at uh, university yourself, Kevin? Well, for my undergraduate days, I was an English literature major, uh, which was a natural thing for me because I'm English on my mother's side of the family. And uh, our family name is Young. Her maiden name was Young, which is very English surname. And uh, actually, we've traced the family tree back to, oh, the late 1400s and a Lord Mayor of London, who is an ancestor of mine, a distant ancestor. So uh, we have British roots, and uh, I've always had a deep affinity, love, and appreciation for English literature. I remember, as a young person, thinking that England was the land where literature lived. <laughs> and <laughs> so when I had a chance to study English literature as an undergraduate, I took full advantage of it and actually had a semester abroad in London in the fall of 1985. So those initial points of interest only served to deepen through that experience. And then for graduate school, I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary and got my Master of Arts in Church History. And then more recently, one course at a time, I sort of picked away at it uh, here and there while I was working on the film Amazing Grace, but I earned a second master's degree in American and New England studies just to round out my understanding of historical currents and streams that shape the American experience and here in New England in particular. Hmm. It's, it's striking. Your, your exposure to literature, clearly you are someone who's enjoyed poetry, and I would put to you, and I would in be interested to hear your thoughts on this, you, I would propose, are a writer who would parallel the discipline of the method actor, by which I mean when a, uh, an actor decides to embody their role, there is a school which says that they must, they must live in it and stay in it. Now, what fascinates me is that you clearly immerse yourself in your sources to the extent that uh, you, rather than simply giving chronology, you introduce your readers to the person. And that seems to be also the domain of the poet. 
Now, has this been something you've consciously aimed at, or have you simply found that was your style? Well, first off, what a kind thing for you to say. I, I deeply appreciate that. You know, I, I do think it has been intentional. I, I do have models and uh, people about, or a, rather after whom I've thought to pattern my writing. And, and one of America's great historians is a gentleman named David McCullough. And he's won a uh, couple of Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, he studied uh, American history from the 1700s on forward to the present and uh, done books about uh, Harry Truman and the Wright brothers that I, I deeply appreciated. And the one common theme that, that runs throughout his books, since he is a painter also by vocation and had training there at Yale in that discipline, they say that he paints with word pictures, hmm. uh, which is a metaphorical way to say that since he immerses himself so fully in the sources, uh, when he writes, you get such a vivid sense of time and place that you feel as though uh, you're walking sort of the same streets, the old paths that these people about whom he writes walked and knew well, and and you really have a chance to experience the world as they knew it. Mm. And, and I've often thought, although I, I don't ever pretend to be a historian in, in Mr. McCullough's class or other peers of, of his age and standing, it's something for me to strive for as a biographer. It, it's something there that uh, is a goal that I have before me, a benchmark, if you will, that I try to emulate and pattern my writing after. Mm. Frankly, it's the... Uh it is the fulfilling of the title of biographa, the, 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 the writing of the life, the study of the life. And reading, for example, your Chesterton book, it would be easy to get bogged down in minutiae, and it would be easy to be flippant. But what you do is you walk a path down the middle where we see this light touch, and we're introduced to a man who you, you rejoice in his fun, and that comes across on every page. It's, it's an admirable and it's, a, it's an excellent tool for our time we tend to find now that <laughs> I find when I'm giving people tours in London, it is a shock that young people have not heard of Wilberforce, have not heard of Charles Spurgeon, have not heard of John Wesley. Do you remember how the study of church history first came to your attention? I think for me, as a young person, there were a couple of things. Early on, I can't remember a time when I couldn't read. My mother's told me that when I was you know, three years old or so, I was already pointing out things in the, the grocery store uh, and reading the labels and such, and um, apparently I had picked it up from watching television and just identifying things. And she was a little surprised that I'd got on to things so early, so she sent me off to school a bit earlier than some would go. And uh, so I was with kids a year older than me, and I was reading. And, and because she would read to me herself, uh, we used to have a wonderful book subscription service here in our elementary school system called the Weekly Reader Program. And uh, I think it was every month, perhaps every two weeks, we'd get a little catalog of books that you could buy with your allowance, say 35 cents, say 50 cents at the most. And uh, I would often get books that way. So mm. between my mother's reading to me and then the little subscription that I had to the Weekly Reader, I think that stoked my love of reading. But a couple things specifically relating to church history do stand out. When I was about 12 years old or so, not long after I'd come to faith, my mother began reading to us from Corey Ten Boom's book, uh, Tramp for the Lord. Mm. And that was very moving for me. Of course, it talked about her experiences in concentration camp, but really just the whole process of her leaning on the Lord in all kinds of settings and circumstances. And she would read, say, a portion of a chapter. We'd get through a chapter maybe 
once a week, something like that. Uh, she'd sit us down and read to us. And that has stayed with me. And I think I felt, she, of course, she was alive then. But uh, I remember connecting with her through the written word that way. Mm. And then flash forward a few more years to when I was at college at Gordon College. She spoke for the inauguration of President uh, Richard Gross at Gordon College, my alma mater. And, and that was really a special thing because she'd been dead for several years by that time. But having listened to the book that my mom read to me from, Tramp for the Lord, when I was young, and then having a chance to hear her in the setting where I was pursuing my education, and to hear how she connected with the young people and how deeply appreciative they were of all that she had to say, I think that was a very telling moment for me to see how someone who had experienced something that was history for the young people who were hearing her, to, for her to bring that history alive in what she said, and for them to connect with it in such a meaningful way, that stood out to me. Mm. But then a little earlier than that, I think the other touchstone catalyst for me in terms of, of church history and a point of connection came when I was 19, and I went to hear Francis Schaeffer speak. Oh, wow. That was really something to hear him and his wife, Edith, reflect on their long lives of service and the good things that the Lord had shown them about what it meant to love the Lord with one's mind and, and carry that whole idea into all of life. Uh, that was very meaningful. But something that happened that was sort of a parenthetical to that visit to hear the Schaefer speak, someone was handing out a short-lived newsletter called the New England Correspondent. And the lead article in that newsletter was an article about William Wilberforce. Mm. And, and Ben, I'd never heard of William Wilberforce. And, and when I read the article, it made a profound impression on me. And I thought, well, hang on a second. You know, if this gentleman is who the article makes him out to be, if his legacy and history is what it's uh, being purported to be in this article, then why haven't I heard of him alongside other historical figures like Gandhi or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln, you know, folks like that? Mm. Why hadn't I heard of Wilberforce? And that planted a seed mm. of interest. I, I did some more reading, and that seed laid fallow until I got to graduate school at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I did a paper on Wilberforce, and that grew eventually into my master's thesis, and that eventually led a few years later to my first biography about Wilberforce. So oh. that's a, a bit of the uh, the background, a bit of the backstory, as it were. Super. And so you studied Wilberforce as part of your master's? If memory serves, <laughs> the title was William Wilberforce, The Making of an Evangelical Reformer. Fascinating. Uh, I believe that was the full title. And I think what it was wanting to explore, apart from you know, a bit of Wilberforce's biography and, of course, the 20-year fight to abolish the slave trade, and then his other philanthropic endeavors, because we must always remember that although mm. the abolition fight was so central to what he achieved as a reformer, there were at least some 70 other different philanthropic initiatives that he was either a catalyst for or a prime mover in. Mm. So he really was active in so many ways, but the... Uh, the faith element that informed and shaped all of that was a wonderful tradition that we call here in America the, the evangelical Anglican tradition. And of course, we think of not only Wilberforce, but John Newton, um, you know, many others who have uh, followed in that tradition, the more mm. evangelically minded part of the Anglican Church. And, and Wilberforce was certainly there uh, reading his book, A Practical View of Christianity, which I'd read from my thesis uh was a wonderful surprise, because it seemed to me that that book uh, not only set out his vision for the good society, but it also set out his first reasons for faith, 
Mm. What had led him to embrace the gospel? So there were two pillars there. And so I think my reading of that book really helped to shake the thesis as well. Mm. Now, you're, it's clear that you've enjoyed that. I benefit daily from your, from your book, 365 Days with Wilberforce, in which you're not only quoting Wilberforce, but you're expounding on him. And it's a brilliant, uh, I honestly think it's one of the most helpful books someone can read now, not least because Wilberforce didn't get anything from the church in terms of a salary. He was not someone who benefited from the church. Therefore, what's his motive his motive, well, it must be true. <laughs> it must be good. Yes. So he's not saying, I'm saying this because this is my job. He's saying, look, I'm tasting and seeing. But also, and I, I would put this to you, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this particular question, Kevin. People sometimes now say, we need another Wilberforce. However, they don't know the first one. They don't know that he was considered the funniest man in England. They don't know that he was totally spontaneous, chaotic, a great singer. They don't know he could speak for three hours without notes. They don't know about his neglecting his friend's letter for six months and then writing four sides of apology. for. They, they don't know that, that <laughs> children love to play with him. Was, how, I get the impression reading John Pollock's wonderful biography of um, Wilberforce, yeah. which, I, which is an absolutely highly recommendable thing, that, that as Pollock researched, he became more and more <laughs> astonished and confused by his subject because he didn't fit the mould of an effective English <laughs> fellow. What, what, what would you say to that observation? Well, first off, I would want to pay tribute to uh, John Pollock, who was a dear friend. Oh, really? Um, I'm so glad I got a chance. Yes, I'm so glad I got a chance to know him in his last years and to spend time with him and his wife, Anne. Um, but as to Wilberforce and what he was really like, you know, you're absolutely right. I, of course, I've seen many times and stood before and, and said a prayer of thanks before the wonderful memorial for Wilberforce at Westminster Abbey. Uh, but I think sometimes that's how we tend to perceive him as sort of someone cast in stone, carved in marble, not someone who was really alive in all the ways that you just said for your listeners to hear, um, that he was someone who was just wonderfully human uh, in so many facets of his life. And his life... Uh, sort of thinking about his writings and the way he would have couched it and explaining to friends, I think he felt so profoundly and deeply grateful for the, the work of redemption and grace in his life mm. that he would say that, that all the labors, all the endeavors, really every facet of life was an expression of gratitude for all that he'd experienced and known through the Lord's blessing and redemption in his life. Mm. So, yes, I mean, for him to take joy, as much joy and sense of fulfillment, uh, as a person and running a race with children on the lawn or having a game of cricket, um, you know, sharing a wonderful story and laughing as well as the rest yes. or singing, you know, treasured music, all the different things that you put your finger on. Um, to, to know Wilberforce in that way, I think, is very helpful because, you know, the, the thing that I discovered, um, sometimes we look at someone like that and we sort of throw up our hands and say, well, I, I could never have an impact like mm. that. And think we make a great mistake when we think that. Right. Um, it, it's very true that Wilberforce's particular calling, set of circumstances, and his opportunities were unique, but that doesn't mean for one moment that we can't seek to follow the Lord as faithfully and fully with our own particular gifts and opportunities as we might. Amen. And so I think, it, it, yes, and I, I think if we would be Wilberforcean in that respect, to try and honor the Lord as he did, discover what our own unique opportunities and uh, talents are, mm. cultivate them, mm. uh, seek fellowship in a local setting. Mm. You know, it may be that some of us never really go beyond 
the limits of the village or the town where we live, perhaps the city. But in that particular setting, we can shine a light where we are locally. Yes. And, and Wilberforce, I think, when he pursued the Reformation of Manners, that was very much what he had in mind. He, he looked back at the page of history. He read a book from 1692 on the Reformation of Manners, and he noticed that all these local Reformation societies had grown up seeking to promote cultural renewal, uh, moral renewal through church settings, but established lending libraries, soup kitchens, all these kinds of philanthropic endeavors were an outflow of these local groups. And the net effect of it all was that there was a rising tide that was lifting all boats throughout the nation. Mm. There was a wonderful leavening effect uh, where people knew that, you know, these Christian folk may not be perfect, but they're out there trying, and they're trying to make a better world. Um, Wilberforce latched onto that and said, look, I'd like to try and take that up and build off of that model and see if we can't establish, yes, some national initiatives, things that are very visible in the public eye, but also at the same time encouraging things on a more grassroots level mm. so that both from the bottom and then perhaps in some of the, the higher tiers of society, perhaps they could meet in the middle, all that good could spread throughout British society in its time. So those are some of the kinds of things that when you raise the question, you know, we need a Wilberforce today. You can look to his example. I mean, very few of us, <laughs> to be quite honest, will be 21 years old and be members of Parliament. That's mm. probably not going to happen for most of us. Mm. But uh, to seek and honor the Lord uh, the way that he did, I think that's something that we can look to his life and, and receive some wonderful guidance and some examples that we could follow. Amen. And uh, delightfully, our mutual friend Michael McMullen is about to publish his private uh, Wilberforce's secret secret journals, I think they're being called, in which we yes. see page after page after page of Wilberforce pouring out his heart to the Lord. And he says things like this. He says, I feel like uh, I'm so far behind. I wish I was further on in grace, but he is faithful to me. And you think, that sounds familiar. That sounds like, yeah. well, that sounds like me. You know, that sounds... And, and the delightful thing there, Kevin, is, and this is the usefulness of church history, isn't it? Because it's gospel history. It's people who do not deserve to be saved, being saved, and say, I want him, I want him. And when I don't pursue him, I feel wretched, I want him. And you get that in Wilberforce. He has this this wonderful delight. They say he was always humming a hymn of praise and, and going through the Psalms. Everyone who knew him said there was this full of this light. You're also drawing attention to the layers of church history here. But here's a man, Wilberforce sees a model, says, let's go for this. And he recognizes, I, he's recognizing, I can't do this. It's by the help of God. You know, Wesley wrote that in his last letter to him. Of course, if God's not in yeah. it, it won't work. But if he is, and he was. And you see, you see the layers. So there's, there's Wilberforce, and of course, he himself is mentored, encouraged by Newton, who was known in his time as the little Whitfield, who, of course, you has roots back with Wesley back to the Reformation, and Jan Hus back to Wycliffe. We see layers and layers of people. Yeah. And that, of course, thrills you and me, because we, we accept and <laughs> acknowledge history hasn't finished, and that's why we do this. We draw people's attention to people who believe this gospel in earlier times. Right. Well, that's just it. I mean, there are chapters being written in a story that's been going on for a very long time, mm. if you will. Mm. And we, we live in a later chapter or chapters of a story, so to speak. Um, but that whole idea of the cloud of witnesses, mm. um, to think of history as something that's long ago and far away. 
I think we make a great mistake. We're part of the flow of history. Yes. Uh, but I also think that it's very helpful to realize that uh, Wilberforce drew strength and encouragement uh, and wisdom, really, from people who'd gone on before. Yes. And so if we think of him as taking up the book on the Reformation of Manners and learning from it, of course, when he wrote Practical View of Christianity, you can see in the footnotes all the great writers of the Christian tradition to whom he was indebted. Mm. I mean, that is us. Mm. We can look back to, to people like Wilberforce and that wonderful circle of people that he worked with, and, and he would be the first to say that he did nothing alone, that all the folks that were part of the Clapham Circle and all the folks that he knew and fellowshiped with and learned from uh, when he was seeking to uh, be a young Christian, seeking to find his way and get established in the faith, I mean, all those things resonate with our own experience, and I'm so glad you pointed to Michael McMullen's new book, and I can't commend it enough. I mm. was honored to write a foreword mm. for it, and I'm so pleased that he's done the wonderful work over many years of collecting those passages from Wilberforce's spiritual journals and bringing them forward to us, because uh, Wilberforce himself used to say that history was eminently useful, because when we take up a book and we read about history, we can gain cheaply lessons that by others have been dearly bought. Yes. <laughs> and I just think that's such a, a profound thing, that all we have to do is take up a book and take the time to read to see what others worked out over the course of a lifetime. And so I love that phrase, that we can gain cheaply lessons that by others have been dearly bought. And I, I think that's what Wilberforce was doing. Gosh. That's a superb. That's a superb statement, isn't it? Uh, what about this, Kevin? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this side. Here is a man who, when he speaks in Parliament, he is so gracious. He is known to be so gracious that when he sits down, a man gets up and says, and as usual, Mr. Wilberforce has spoken, and we don't know which side he's on because he's so gracious. And yet he manages to get so very much done. Um, it seems that he walked, uh, he's made that he's not a fool. He's walking hand in hand with Providence. Do you, do, what are your observations about that, Kevin? Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, of course, uh, in, in Britain today, you have uh, political parties, we know their names. Wilberforce was an independent, mm. although in his outlook, he was largely aligned with Prime Minister William Pitt, his great friend, uh, of whom many said they were like brothers, they were so close. So you could say in one sense he was sort of a Pittite in terms of his general outlook. Um, that, that kind of pegs him in terms of political history. But in terms of the way he comported himself when he was young, prior to what he called his great change or his embrace of Christianity in 1785, he was really someone who would not hesitate to savage political opponents in mm. debate. We have a letter from Pitt saying, tear the enemy to pieces. And Wilberforce didn't flinch from doing that. As a matter of fact, his attacks on a contemporary a politician who was with another camp other than Wilberforce and Pitt themselves, Charles James Fox, they were so aggressive and, and at times personal and vitriolic that Fox hated him for a time. Mm. And so that was the world where Wilberforce was, and it was a heady thing. I mean, we have to remember that by the time the spring of 1786 came around, so, you know, say December 1785, when Wilberforce really wrestled with the implications of faith, saw John Newton, and then by spring of the following year, 1786, that great change was complete. He was still very young. He was only in his mid to late 20s. 
Right. And here he was, MP for the largest county in the entirety of the country, the county of York, which only had two representatives at that time. It's a very powerful post, probably one of the most powerful elected posts there in the UK. And the close friend of the prime minister, he was moving in the highest social circles. You can see where that would get the better of you, especially if you're not following the Lord at that time. Mm. And you just wouldn't scruple, you wouldn't hesitate to go after your political opponents because that was the great game. Right. To, 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 win, to win power and to hold power and to wield power. And so when Wilberforce began to wrestle with the implications of that uh, after his great change, he understood what it meant, uh, the idea of trying to live out the golden rule. Mm. And one of the things he did that I, I thought was so special about uh, him being honest, uh, making mistakes along the way to be sure, but being honest and wanting to follow through on things with his Christian commitment, was to mend those broken relationships, mm. to build bridges back. Um, and he did with Charles James Fox in particular, to the point that when the great abolition bill was almost ready to pass, say 1806, something like that, within a year or so of its eventual passage in 1807, he and Fox had actually grown close because of their work together on the abolition issue. And, uh, you know, they had very little in common. Right. Um, Fox was famously a rather profligate man, mm. great gifts politically, you know, amazing eloquence and in the House of Commons, all to be sure, which is very different in terms of lifestyle and certainly in, in terms of faith commitment. He was not a Christian, mm. uh, as Wilberforce was. But there was genuine affection and regard. Fascinating. Uh, that had grown up over time because Wilberforce tried to be consistent. Right. And I'm sure the first few times he tried to reach out to Fox, he might have been rebuffed with, you know, my goodness, what do we have here? You've now become a a Bible thumper or someone that's mm. uh, very different, you know, we'll see if this is really genuine, you know, mm. if you really mean this. Um, and Wilberforce had a chance to do that. You know, he didn't always have people come around to appreciating that the change that had taken place in his life. Um, but I'm pleased to say that in that particular case with Fox, there really was a rapprochement. Mm. And they really did come to, uh, to have an appreciation and, and a genuine affection for one another and respect mm. that I don't think would have been possible were it not for Wilberforce's embrace of faith. Absolutely right. And, and you see this uh, this again and again. Uh, the, the, I think what we're talking about here is the, the gospel hinges at an awesome act and demonstration of love and grace. And all the great writers on this, Jonathan Edwards and all in Charity and Its Fruits and so on, they talk a great deal about, well, the fruition of this is love. It's love. And you find, you know, Fox was an immoral profligate. He was getting Prince Regent in all sorts of trouble. And yet Wilberforce is able to establish, as you say, an affectionate relationship. It reminds me of um, when we look at uh, the life of, for example, Jonathan Edwards, he's talking in terms of how a spirit of love is an amiable spirit. It is the spirit of Jesus Christ. It is the spirit of heaven. These great thinkers about the gospel have accepted that the consequence of the gospel is going to be love. It reminds me of that great book by Michael Morgan and John Newton, a Catalyst for Compassion, in which he tells the story of how when Newton was in Olney, another local vicar was liberal, and he wasn't a gospel man, uh, but uh, Newton would attempt to be his friend. 
and this liberal yeah. man would bat him back. You just sort of think he was a fool. But later, when that man's life fell apart, it was John Newton to whom he turned because he was a man who was gracious, loving, affectionate, patient, all the things which the gospel makes people. And we see with Wilberforce, you think, well, how's this fun-loving, you know, uh, enjoyable wit going to change the world. Well, that's how God does it. You know, <laughs> how does he change the world? He changes it by a man dying on a cross. How's that going to change anything? You know, I'm trying to plant a church. Right. Here. I'm trying to plant a church here among, among, among Muslims. They don't get it at all. How does a guy dying change anything? Well, that's how God does it. You see, but uh, yes, you see that again and yes. again in the life of, of Wilberforce, this graciousness, which turns out to be potent. Because the Holy Spirit, who fills people and changes people, is the sovereign God. Well, that's right. I mean, our lives, when we come to faith, they're a journey to that point, but they're most certainly a journey after. And sometimes it happens more quickly, other times more slowly. Uh, the way that grace helps shape our lives, helps uh, smooth the rough edges that were there before. In some cases, in Wilberforce's case, where he actually had to go and ask forgiveness of people whom he deeply hurt and offended, there is something I think also maybe that's very winsome about someone who over the course of time really is seen to be trying very hard to live out the tenets of a faith that calls you to do those hard things, mm. to, to ask forgiveness, to, to build those bridges or rebuild the bridges that were, uh, that were broken down, and to try and forge a new relationship where there had only been brokenness and acrimony before. It, uh, mm. it took time. That is so true. But I do think it is so instructive for all the reasons that you pointed to. Yes, it is um, so true. Just in, in talking about with, uh, with John Newton as well, um, I think people were very skeptical in his case. And, mm. But to be there, and, and I find that such a moving story that uh, someone who didn't have much use for Newton for a long time, when he really was in need, he remembered Newton as being really someone who was very genuine and real and reached out to him. Um, no, I think that goes very close to the heart of what it's all about. And none of us pretend to be perfect as Christians, but mm. I think we serve a Lord who can help us to be gracious, to give us the strength to love people that it may be hard to love, um, and to be loving ourselves, mm. if that was not a part of our character. I remember that uh, Wilberforce said, um, it's just a passing reference, but there's a lot there in it, he used to be quick-tempered when he was younger and short with people. When he came to faith, I'm sure that occasionally there were flashes of temper, as there are with us all from mm. time to time, that we feel badly about. Mm. But the fact that people who knew him before, who knew that he could have a quick temper and not suffer you know, fools gladly, as the old phrase has it, to see that he was trying so hard to bear and forbear, to, to be less you know, quick with things of the temper, that really made a deep impression with him. So, yeah, living out the faith is, we're all a work in progress. Mm. But I'm so glad to see that we have the lives of people like Newton and Wilberforce and, and the folk that they knew and looked to for, for examples that to help them yes. along the way, for Amen. sure. Do you remember how it was that you came to hear the gospel in the first place? Oh, yes. No, I remember very well. I can even put a date to it, May mm. 28, 1976. Mm. My background in terms of my family upbringing, my father uh, was raised in the Catholic faith, my mother in the Baptist tradition, and they met uh, when they were in their late teens and they married very young. But both of them, for a number of years, faith was really something that was sort of on the back burner. Uh, it was not a priority for them. 
And my father would be the first to tell you that he, he really wasn't a Christian in terms of a transformation of heart with all that that would imply a personal embrace of faith and, and praying a, a sinner's prayer for forgiveness and redemption. Uh, that just wasn't something that had been part of his upbringing. He was immersed in church culture, but it really hadn't taken hold in his heart. And my mom really had had a genuine encounter of faith when she was younger, but uh, as she got into her late teens and got married, it was something that was not a, a priority in her life. She she wandered away a bit. So my own church attendance uh, when I was small was was a bit spotty. Uh, they would try and go uh, a few times every year, and sometimes they would be fairly consistent for a few months at a time. And I just remember being in Sunday school. Uh, we would hear the stories from the Bible. We would be asked to memorize Scripture. And so, uh, somehow, even though it was a bit um, haphazard and not terribly consistent in those early years, there were good seeds that were planted, mm. things that stayed with me. Mm. And my father had a book of Bible stories that I just read and read and read, uh, from the Old Testament all the way through the New. It had wonderful illustrations in it that sort of helped those scenes uh, be visualized for me. But reading about the lives of the patriarchs and all the Old Testament figures, and then on into the New Testament, through the life of Christ and the life of the early Church, um, that particular book of Bible stories w- was very helpful to me. And then, probably oh, a few months before I uh, made my own prayer and confession of faith, all by myself, I might add, in my uh, in my bedroom, wow. I've been thinking about all these things. Uh, and at the same time, I had a friend, I was probably in the sixth grade, so I would have been maybe 11 or 12 at the time. She had been reading the Narnia books with all that it says about Aslan and uh, all the the reflections of Christian truth that are woven in and throughout those books. And I had never heard of C.S. Lewis, much less the Narnia books. Mm. But she told me I had to read them. You know, you, you've really got to read these. He's a wonderful book. And uh, so she began to let me borrow his, or uh, rather her, uh, paperback copies. And so when I would read there about Aslan and how the Pevensey children, when they met Aslan and had those encounters with him, there was something transformational, albeit in a fictional allegorical sense, but somehow that took all the loose ends of the strands that I, that had been flowing into my life of grace and helped tie them up. And I remember distinctly just sitting down there in my bedroom and saying, you know, Lord, if you're real, if all this is true and to be believed, you know, I, I want the kind of, of hope and peace that I've been seeing modeled in the books, but also, and more importantly, what I've been hearing about in the Bible. And it just was something that I did all by myself. And uh, it, it was really a beautiful thing. Uh, it just, uh, I remember have, having such a sense of that prayer having been heard and been answered. And uh, that, that set in motion my whole journey of faith. It's now been, what, 45 years since then. Gracious. Wonderful. That's wonderful. So the exposure to the text and strikingly this allegorical thing. I tell you, it's interesting, you, you're thinking of layers there. It makes me think of layers. Reading the Narnia books to yourself, it's interesting enough. Try reading it out loud to a child. See how far you get yeah. before you burst into tears. <laughs> I was reading, right. every time I'm reading these things, and you see the glorious, and then they see him, and you see Peter. He heard his name. He felt brave. You think, gosh, you got it. What is that? Why can't I read anymore? 
<laughs> and he, the resurrection of Aslan. And you're just, I was trying to read that passage in a cafe to my son. And the guy at the next table was looking over at me as he's jolly, welling up with tears as I'm reading. But yes, oh, how wonderful, how wonderful. And, um, yeah, and I, I have done that. I should say, Ben, uh, I have read the, the books to my son. He's now 15, but I began reading them to him when, when I was seven. And you, I just wanted to, you know, underscore what you said. You know, you're absolutely right. Reading them to yourself is one thing, but then reading them to a child and hoping that some of that special experience that you knew mm. carries over into their lives, that it is very difficult to get very far in those books without being deeply moved. Yes, indeed. I look, uh, wonderful to hear you say that as an author who knows the potency of the written word. And uh, we've talked about heroes together here. Can I... Is there anyone else you particularly like to talk to, or can we come on to what you've recently written? Yeah, um, well, I think perhaps just to, to tie things up with, with William Wilberforce just a bit, um, and the Lord has been so gracious with some of the streams of blessing that have flowed uh, from my book, which was published for the first time in 2002. But then, just before Amazing Grace came out in 2007, I had a chance to do a, sort of a revised paperback edition and by revise, simply just fill in some of the places that uh, where my knowledge had grown a bit. It was essentially the same book, but I had a chance to do that. And, and when I did, that paperback book went places that I could not have imagined. Mm. Uh, I remember in 2008, maybe it was a little later than that, uh, being contacted by someone who had taken a course on character formation and leadership at Harvard University here in the States, one of our great institutions of higher learning. It's sort of uh, very much like Oxford and Cambridge are for British friends there in the UK. One of those kinds of schools, very high profile and, and uh, influential school. They have a, a school there in the university called the Kennedy School of Government, named after the late President John F. Kennedy. And there was a course there, as I say, being taught on character formation and leadership. Uh, and the book was required reading mm. for the class. And I had no prior knowledge of that. Mm. And moreover, they screened the film on the night that they had to come and discuss the book. Uh, they were asked to watch Amazing Grace, and I believe that that course was taught starting in 2008 uh, for five years after that. Wow. And uh, so, you know, when I learned about that and had a chance to write the, to the professor there, David Gergen, who was teaching the course, and thank him and got a nice note back from his administrative assistant, um, I just had no idea that the Lord would take a book like that um, and, and bring it into the classroom there at Harvard. And uh, I remember getting an email from the White House just after President Obama had been sworn in. Uh, he was due to give a talk, I found out later, at the National Prayer Breakfast here. But they wanted Wilberforce quotes to flow into his prepared remarks, his speech, for that occasion. And it was one of those things, you know, Kevin, can you drop everything you're doing? And if you can get me some pithy Wilberforce quotes, some, some wise and some eloquent quotes, within the next hour and a half, we'll have a chance to put them in the president's speech. And I thought, okay, uh, I'll drop everything and try and do that. And, uh, and it ended up happening. There was a lovely quote from Wilberforce that was included. So, you know, I, I just want to express gratitude. Mm as an American of British heritage, uh, for all that Wilberforce has meant to me in my life as an author, but then to see how there are chapters being written still 
yes. in the story of the Wilberforce legacy and where it's gone here in the States. So I just wanted to share a little bit about that if I could. Yeah. Yeah. Metaxas says pointedly and helpfully, I think, that the England into which Wilberforce was born was markedly different to the one he left behind. That is an awesome statement. He came into a world and profoundly changed it. I mean, we were talking about the National Gallery yesterday. I said to someone, did you know where that comes from? Wilberforce. Wilberforce behind the National Gallery. (laughs) Apart from all these other extraordinary things. And you think, here's a man who changed everything. And yet, picking up a secular book about the history of Westminster recently, I looked for Wilberforce in the index, and he was mentioned once as Wilberforce the abolitionist. Because a world that doesn't love Christ doesn't love his servants, as he warned us. But yes, here is a man who changed everything, but would say first, he'd be the first to say, no, no, I didn't. <laughs> but I know someone who did. Yeah. And I cast down my crown before yeah. him. Now, your 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 um, fascination with uh, with London's church history has overflowed into this new book that you've written. Uh, but perhaps unexpectedly, William Borden who uh, is, was a, a, another, actually he was not Harvard, he was Yale, wasn't he? A young man who was a, a delightful uh, missionary or about to become a missionary, but someone who's, uh, who first made a profession of faith having heard R.A. Torrey preaching on the Strand, presumably at Essex House in London. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it's a remarkable uh, story. And it's one that I heard about, of course, when we think of Borden, those who know anything about the story, the phrase Borden of Yale, comes to us from uh, my predecessor as a Borden biographer, who is actually Geraldine Guinness-Taylor, mm. not only the great-aunt of our mutual friend Oz Guinness, but the daughter-in-law of Hudson Taylor. Mm. So there's that bit of provenance there, and her book came out in London in 1926, so it's approaching its centenary. But uh, yes, his coming to faith really, uh, in terms of a full surrender or consecration of his life and all of his opportunities, his resources, his time, his talents, that unfolded in London in 1905 and under the ministry of Dr. Corey. And uh, it's amazing to me that, uh, of course, he was on a round-the-world tour. He had graduated from what we call preparatory school over here, which is uh, just before one goes up to university. His parents sent him on what was essentially a gap year, a trip around the world. And so the final stages of that trip were unfolding in the summer of 1905, and uh, he was traveling in company with a a fellow uh, Christian who was uh, headed for the mission field, was a bit older than Borden, but was the chaperone for that journey. Borden was in his late teens. I think he was 17 at the time. Mm -hmm. And they heard that Dr. Torrey was there, whom Borden had met when he was uh, a child, and I thought, well, I'll go hear him speak. And was so moved by what he heard that he went back the following evening, and there the wonderful moment unfolded where there was a singing of the hymn, I Surrender All, and an invitation to give oneself wholly, unreservedly to the Lord. Mm. And he did that, and for the remaining years of his life, uh, he died tragically at 25 of cerebral spinal meningitis in Cairo, Egypt, while he was learning Arabic in preparation for ministry among Muslims as a medical missionary, uh, I believe it was the Uyghurs, in uh, China. Mm. That was his plan, that was his goal, uh, but he never got there. But the remaining seven years of his life until he was called home through that time of illness were given completely over to following the Lord and uh, learning about what he did as an undergraduate to try and live out his faith there at Yale was an extraordinary thing for me. I had known who he was. I had heard the phrase, Borden of Yale, Mm. 
But I really had no idea of the richness that was going to unfold when I began to dig into the source materials and find out just what a, a remarkable young man he was. Mm. With your particular skill and, and with the way you approach the history, what you've done in this wonderful new book, Beacon Light, as it's called, The Life of William Borden, 1887 to 1913, is you have given the world an introduction to him. You have introduced us to this lovely young man. And uh, if we were to compare him with Wilberforce, we would say, well, Wilberforce, he, he did it. He managed all these, he made the, all these things happen. But you say, well, what did Borden achieve? Well, you could say there was the, the work among the, the poor in Chicago, and there was the, the motivating effect he had. But what you've done is you've introduced us, there's the fragrance of Christ. There's the, you are introducing us to someone who exemplifies what a, a, a young believer looks like. And you talk about how he's enjoying going off with his friends for fun, but then he would always have his, they knew he would have his time at the mercy seat and he'd be off with yeah. the Lord. And th there was this fragrance that came off him. It, frankly, we, without a pandemic keeping everyone apart already, we're quite an isolated generation. We're an isolated moment. And we don't know how to do friendship. We don't know how to do relationship in a godly and uh, an, a, an authentic way. And here's this lovely young man who's, who, because of the gospel, is the way you put it in the book. He was either people either followed him or they left him alone. He was someone people wanted to follow. And you think I would love young believers to read this and to say, well, "That's the sort of thing I should be." That's and see someone who did it, who who did, who went before us. And that there you go. There's the potency of, of the task of the biographer. Now, uh, can I finish, Kevin, by asking you one last question? What would your advice be to people who are listening to this? Well, to be honest. You know, I don't know that I have any special wisdom, <laughs> but I would hasten to say that I hope I know where to look for it. Very good. And that is in the lives of the men and women who have gone before. Mm. To, to look to the pages of Christian history, to see how these men and women on, on whose shoulders we stand who have come before us, some of them may have been you know, very, very humble and very local in their lives and their impact and their influence, others perhaps much more prominent but there's a whole tapestry, a whole heritage, Christian heritage, to, to use the name of your wonderful organization, that's waiting to be discovered. Mm. And we don't have to be historians ourselves to tap into that rich heritage, that rich sense of all that's gone before, and to learn from it. Mm. Sometimes it's an eloquent line that we might read in a devotional, and you think, yes, that person may have lived a long time ago, but that resonates with my own experience, and maybe they weren't all that different from who I am and seeking to be mm. as a believer and follow Christ. There's that element. But then I think the Church is and always has been supremely—the Church has cared deeply about history. Yes. And you have it right from the beginning in the Book of Acts, or in Luke's wonderful Gospel when he tells, you know, Theophilus, I've looked into all these things, and I've researched them carefully— and there's a written record there. We, we are people of the book, after all, are we not? Mm. We love the Lord's Word. We seek to learn from it each day. That can carry over into an exploration of history. So as I say, I, I don't know that I have any special wisdom, but I, I would like to think I know where to look for it. And oh, that's wonderful. One doesn't have to go any further than Christian history, don't you think? Oh, that's that's a brilliant. I love it. That's a brilliant answer. And, and, and I think uh, if people haven't yet read... Kevin's books, The Beacon Light, would perhaps be an excellent place to start. His biography of William Wilberforce. 
and uh, the wonderful um, book. Now, what's it called? The G.K. Chesterton one on joy. What's it called? Surprise. Oh, Defiant Joy. Defiant Joy. What a great, what great fun that is. But then also the books of your friend John Pollock. I don't think I've read a bad one yet. <laughs> yes. Yes. And excellent stuff. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful to have this time with you, Kevin. Thank you so much for giving us your time and for illuminating our uh, our thoughts. And uh, I do hope and trust that uh, that this will give a lot of people some serious thought and encouragement. Well, thank you, Ben. It's been a, a blessing and a pleasure. And uh, good greetings to all friends there in the UK. And uh, you're in our thoughts and prayers as we come through the time of pandemic. I've, I've really enjoyed having a chance to visit with you. Amen. Bless you, sir. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.